Hi, I'm Jason Chung, head of the esports practice at Zuber Lawler. And I'm Philip Milestone, counsel at Zuber Lawler. Zuber Lawler is a law firm, and like any good lawyers, we have a big disclaimer for you. We are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. Until you pay us. So everything here is for entertainment purposes only. Again, until you pay us. Brought to you by virtualtimes.com. Virtualtimes.com, your news from the metaverse. Hello, MetaSapiens. Welcome back. This week, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, something very interesting. But before that, I'm one of your hosts. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm Philip. We're, thank you for joining us again on the deep dive into the metaverse. And, uh, you know, I think in previous weeks, we talked about property. We talked about money and all of that, uh, you know, all of that uh, materialistic nonsense, right, uh, regarding the metaverse. So I thought this week, it would be uh, less gauche of us to talk about something a little bit more fundamental to the metaverse and just to human existence in general. And that's really about relationships, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, if you're talking about a platform where people interact, I, I'm guessing that relationships are at the core of the entire thing, right? So today, I wanted to just ask the question of, you know, will the metaverse uh, change how humans engage it with each other? And uh, if yes, what does it look like? And you know, Philip, I just want to ask you that question straight up. What do you think about the metaverse and how it'll affect human relationships? I think the answer to your question, will the metaverse change how humans engage with each other, is, you know, in the most brilliant lawyer way I can manage, uh, <laughs> yes and no, right? I, the metaverse, I would say that if we were having this conversation in 2019, uh, I would be giving a, a vastly different answer. I think people would say like, no, there's no way we're going to interact with each other digitally most of the time. I need to see people, I need to act with people. I need to, I need to shake hands. I need to, I need to see facial expressions. I need to whatever. But I think the answer today is different insofar as I'll say it's not going to change things very much because we are doing this thing, right? We've all been Zooming or Google Meeting or Google Teams or whatever service you use <laughs> for a couple of years now. And we're all much more comfortable with having technology mediate our personal reactions, right? I have to, I know this is a podcast, I'm making air quotes with my fingers. I don't know if that's going to work. But one thing the metaverse will help, right? Like I can talk with my hands again, which was the thing on the phone um, when we, we, weren't, uh, we weren't having video calls all the time, when the, the bandwidth wasn't there or people weren't comfortable with it. The, the gestures involved, and actually the cues you do pick up from facial um, expressions, all of that will be important uh, and is important, and we're more comfortable with it now. Um, I would say that, if anything, the metaverse is probably behind the type of communication we've been doing for years because avatar technology isn't great. I mean, mm -hmm. Minecraft is a fun game, but no one's going to tell you that the emoting of those characters is the strong point of the game. And that, no, that matters, right? We're having these conversations about, you know, how realistic things can look, you know, Aloy in the new horizon uh, zero uh, West, right. Or for, forbidden West. Uh, it's, you know, that's her, her skin texture and her hair. There's sort of vibrant conversations about her online and how human she looks and how sort of unhuman other characters look. I think the metaverse is not going to change the way that we interact with each other, provided it can simulate what we're doing right now. Uh, it's just it's just another step, you know, which is going from voice to FaceTime to Zoom to Metaverse. So I would say, will it change things? Of course. But I don't think it's going to be as drastic as it might otherwise have been. You know, I tend to agree with that because, you know, I, I you know, in the uh, in the before times, as I like to call them right uh, before before COVID, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of conference calls, didn't we, Philip? Right. Uh, you know, with people. And now it switched over to video chats. And I find that, you know, relating to people is a lot easier these days when you can see somebody, you can track their facial expressions, you can tell when they're bored, uh, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, and it's and it's made it easy and it's made me more cognizant of the fact that, hey, I could probably step into a virtual world and do that. I mean, I played a lot of video games, uh, you know, given my background. And one of the games that I liked best was uh, was this uh, very odd game called L.A. Noir, right? Uh, which was by, uh, you know, uh, which was by a development team out of uh, out of uh, Australia. And what they did was was really futuristic at the time face mapping, right? So they brought in uh, Hollywood actors and actresses and really just made, can you can you tell whether they're lying or not? Uh, part, of, part of the game mechanic, right? Uh, the studio 
completely crashed after after that game was done because the cost was astronomical. But it did make you feel like uh, more invested into the timeline, into the game and all that kind of stuff. So I can imagine that world happening. But like you said, really, the metaverse is not ready yet for prime time because the avatars and how we interact there is not ready for prime time, I think. Um, but I wanted to step back also and just and just ask, you know, given the fact that we're alone a lot of the time, we work alone a lot of the time, you and I have never met in person, for instance, right, which might surprise some people. Um, I just want to ask, you know, what is the nature of relationships now in a post-COVID world? I mean, like, why are they important? What's the hallmark of it? Like, I mean, I, look, this sounds like this sounds crazy. But at the same time, we're talking we're talking about a world where you're working from home. People want to be in a smaller, smaller family units, uh, not interact as much with their with their coworkers in meetings and things like that. And I think we all understand that impetus. But, you know, how has how have we fundamentally changed the society, you think? I mean, I can't possibly answer that. I, everything has changed, right? But at the same time, if anything, us being quote unquote alone has demonstrated to us the importance of human connection, just being around other people. I mean, I'm not a huge concert goer, but I enjoy live music, you know, and going to a small club where a band is playing or there's just even just a, like a piano bar, right? Where the, the focus maybe isn't even the music, but just being around other people, sharing an experience. I'm watching a movie together in a giant theater, right? Yeah. is a shared experience. I mean, and sometimes it can be really awesome. Like, like when, when, when Mjolnir went to Cap, like I was there cheering out loud with the rest of everybody in the movie theater, right? And that's not an experience that happens at home. I'm sure with my kids, but it's, it's different. So I would say that, you know, the pandemic demonstrated to us the importance of human connection, which I think is a way to sort of qualify what I said earlier about how the metaverse is going to not be that big of a change. The one way I hope it will be a big change is it will make our interactions sort of more than business. And I think that is something that we are limiting ourselves to with um, the pandemic technology, if you will. Uh, kids, my kids included, are go went to school over Zoom. And they tried playdates, but it didn't work that great. Um, I, we do conference calls over Zoom, stuff like this, and it actually works really good. But uh, like, I tried to have sort of cocktail hours like, like we were all doing during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that, that doesn't work really well, right? Yeah. And that's sort of a limitation of this technology that I hope the metaverse makes better. Because if the metaverse can approximate walking into, like, like we would have cocktail parties at my house in the before. And the records are on and people are dressed up and there's a conversation in the kitchen and there's a conversation in the living room. There's a conversation outside. And you just sort of float in between and you get a drink and you get the hors d'oeuvres. It's that sort of, you know, that ebb and flow of people, right? That you can't do on a conference call at all, right? Um, or, or FaceTime, because you can't sort of stare at it. So the, the goal of the metaverse, I would hope, is that same immersive experience we've been talking about uh, from, from the get-go, right? Where it really does look like the world, where I'm interacting with it as if I'm in the world somehow, right? I don't know how that's going to work, but that's, that's what I hope will happen so that we can take technology and apply it to all of our social interactions and not just the transactional ones. Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting there is I think it, what we're talking about is that, you know, in terms of our transactional sort of lives, right, the current technology works extremely well. You know, we just look at a webcam, we, we don't really need to interact that much as long as we can communicate clearly. We can do that via email, we can do that, uh, you know, on a video conference or anything like that. As long as we do that, that's fine because transactional life and business life is transactional business life. You know, what really is interesting about the metaverse, and I think the reason why it sort of is taking off, not just only because the technology is getting better, but I think it's because that, like, as you said, immersion is really important, right? And that's important for all the stuff about quality interaction that you have with your friends and family and loved ones, right? And I, I don't think, and I'm not going to speak for you here a little bit, but I know for me, uh, I'm not an expert on social relationships. Uh, I'm an attorney and, a, and, a, and an educator, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, you know, I wouldn't dare to go into like the social psychology of it or anything like that. But what I can say is that as on the educational side of what I do, we did a, we did a pro project for a client and it was all about how uh, the metaverse might actually be really interesting, right? Because it, it allows people to sort of interact in a way that's more organic and it, that's a lot more uh, interesting than we can do via scheduled Zoom because most of life is not this transactional, right? We don't schedule a time to do a recording uh, and say, let's meet here, right? It's, it's really about, hey, I'm at the casino. 
I'm, I'm going to be in Vegas too, or a virtual Vegas as well. And we'll see each other when we see each other. And when we have a beer, we're going to have a beer and we're going to interact for however long we have at that time. And I think that's what we realize is the limit of the current technology and the current sort of web two sort of level of interaction that we have now, right? And I think that's why people are jazzed about web three because it allows, in theory, the metaverse, it allows us to sort of interact and, and be more expressive. But like you said, I, I, I don't think it's fully cooked yet because it can't capture the level of interactivity and the level of just animation that people have in real life. Yeah, I, I see that. And it's gonna, it's gonna augment a relationship that I think a lot of people are still not super comfortable with, um, but mostly because they don't think about it. And that's our relationship to our devices. The metaverse sort of necessarily requires us to have, I, mean, I would say, an intimate connection with something, you know, mediating our interaction with the metaverse, right? Um, the same way, literally the same way my eyes and, you know, my, my hands and my, and my nose, my, my senses allow me to interact with, the, with meat space going to be technology augmenting those senses to allow me to interact with the metaverse, but that's only going to be really well done if that technology is very intimately connected to me, right? In one of our first episodes, I mentioned sort of my science fiction dream of, of, a, of a pill, a drug, a virus that I can take that will sort of, you know, make me empathic to technology such that I can just feel it. That would be, that'd be gold. But until then, all we'll have is, you know, goggles and whatnot, and those are always going to get in the way. So, to the extent we're ready to allow ourselves to have, again, I, the best word I think is intimate because they're going to be probably, I would, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, the same way that we are not social scientists. I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist, but, you know, it's sort of matrix style things sort of inserted into your brain, right? I mean, that, that's gross and painful, but if there's a way to do that, <laughs> that's basically, <laughs> let's do it that way. But that, or, you know, we're talking about contact lenses that you don't actually see that at least will give you some sort of augmented reality, right? We're talking about, I can imagine like, a, like an ecstasy style drug and my brain can sort of lie to my body saying, oh, like not only are you going to feel everything, you're going to feel what you think you're seeing, even though you're not actually seeing it. And that sort of the ingestion of technology, right? The insertion of technology, all of these things that, were, that sort of get us into sort of an, like some people are sort of icky about that. Um, that I think will eventually be necessary for us to experience the metaverse in a way that is not up by big clunky technology and that's a relationship that we're fighting with now right we have people who who hate their phones people who love their phones and i don't think anybody thinks about how intimate our relationships are with our phones already and so i think that's something that we'll have to deal with and the metaverse is going to bring front and center what is your relationship to the technology this new place i will call it a place this new state of being uh and i think that's a relationship that is going to be really important there's going to have to be boundaries. All this stuff that we deal with when we think inter, interpersonally with humans, we're going to start dealing with in terms of our, our devices and our technology, not to mention the companies that own those things. Um, I feel like consent is going to, be mean, it's going to mean even more. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the best analog I can draw right now is privacy, where we have different regimes. The two big ones, let's say, are sort of the, the United States and then the European idea. Companies can do anything. And sometimes you can tell them not to. And under the GDPR, uh, companies can't do anything unless they get your permission. And I hope that when it comes to relationships with our technology in the metaverse, that the default goes more towards the, the European model for sort of personal integrity, for uh, requiring consent for, for any interactions. And I think that's, that's a relationship that needs to be explored. And again, not transactionally. We have to stop thinking about our relationship with devices like we did our relationships with cars. We need to start thinking of relationships with devices the way we think about relationships with hygiene, the way we think about relationships with, um, <laughs> with pets, right? The way that we think about relationships. Um, I'm reminded of Philip Pullman and in his books, um, the characters' souls reside outside of their bodies in the form of animals. And understanding that interplay emotionally, technologically, and all of a sudden this thing that you've sort of invested in emotionally with your entire soul is cut off from you, what impact is that going to have, right? I mean, I feel like we're going to have serious repercussions for people who underestimate the importance of their relationship with the devices they use. And there's also people, there, there are people already who really at the fringe who have already engaged in the, uh, in body hacking, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, 
having stuff, uh, you know, inserted into their bodies and under the skin. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it one of these days pretty soon. But what you're saying to sounds to me at the very least a little sci-fi, right? Because for me, I am a little bit more transactional with my devices. You know, I am, I am the type of person that, that does make sure that my camera is shut down all the time and all that kind of stuff. Like I do want that, that level of disconnect, which is, which people find very odd given, given what I do as a, as, as a career. But at the same time, I do like to have that sort of anonymity, right? I do like that level of separation. I don't really want to be personified into one avatar if I can help it, personally speaking. So, you know, for Luddites like me, Phil, like, you know, how are you going to convince me that this is actually a good thing? Because from, from, to me, to a certain extent, it sounds a little bit like a dystopian nightmare because, <laughs> because what if I don't want to engage with that? You know, I mean, I, I get it. It would be more efficient. And, and yes, we could put in consent that we can do it through law or regulation, or we can do it through the technology itself. But at some level, you're right. It, it, it's not real life, right? It's, it's another life. It's a virtual life. But what if I want to have that separation and maintain that separation? What if I want to have multiple avatars for multiple metaverses? Are we running into an efficiency problem? Would that, would that create an efficiency problem? Does that actually defeat the purpose of a metaverse? Or can we just operate how, how we're going with you know multiple people doing however they want, whatever they I, want in the metaverse? I don't think it defeats it. I mean, I think having the ability to change one's appearance more or less at will is a feature. It's, it's not a bug. Uh, so I would let, we should lean into that. The idea of pulling away um, is all, will always be important, but we, I don't, don't see that any differently than people who enjoy camping, right? And this just sort of getting away from more or less, you know, modern life. Um, I'm intending to go to Eastern California at the end of June to the lakes while they're still there. And on these lakes, there are, you know, there's no plumbing, there's no electricity. You're just, you're on a, on a boat, you know, in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And that you know, has an attraction to me for a week. And that will still be there when there's a metaverse. So I think we'll always have the ability to, to unplug. Uh, not, I'm not worried about that. I, I will take issue with the idea that the metaverse is not real life. I, I think that that is going to be, that's a distinction that we have to sort of get away from. Um, I think it was the case when people think that, you know, say one's experience with movies isn't real life. One's experience with books isn't real life. One's experience with television shows is in real life or video games. And I, I don't think that's true at all. I think that, you know, fictional characters are certainly fictional, but that doesn't mean they're not real. And the metaverse is fictional, but that doesn't mean it's not real. What happens there, you know, does matter. And it matters, you know, across life. And this is just a different way. I mean, it's like there's, there's Paris, there's New York, and there's the metaverse. It's just, it's not categorically different in terms of our experience of it, our interaction with it is, right? Because in Paris, I'm Philip, and in New York, I'm Philip, and in San Francisco, I'm Philip, and in the metaverse, you know, I'm Oberon the Destroyer, or whatever you want to call it, right? And we can sort of build ourselves that way. Um, so I, I, I think that in terms of, of relationships, there will always be the opportunity, I would hope, to unplug and get away. But there's also degrees of that. Going completely dark is sort of is the extreme. And going, you know, straight up neuromancer gargoyle is probably the other extreme. But in between, you know, there's, there's going to be flavors. And I think that we are going to have, I would hope, agency over the data and processes necessary for us to interact in this way. And this, I think, is a paradigm shift, right? I mean, correct me if I'm projecting, but your discomfort with your camera on, your discomfort with sort of your phone next to you all the time, Ems, at least in part, from the lack of control over what's on the other side of that technology, right? If we could gain that control, I think people would be a lot more comfortable with their devices. And I think that's possible through law and regulation, but there's another technology that I think can do a lot of that work. And that's sort of, that's, that's blockchain. That's, that's the decentralization, right? That's Web3. The idea being, I as a human can essentially uh, encapsulate my ability to interact with the metaverse in a pseudonymous wallet or an anonymous wallet, right? It's that the encryption is strong enough that, at least one hopes it is, that I can have all things necessary to interact with the metaverse in sort of ending at this place and behind the curtain, only, there is only me. And I have complete control over access to the curtain, right? 
it's it's immutable and you can live this way and i think if we use decentralized technology to take back that agency over the information that we create and you know in a way that is neither sort of hackable or usable without our consent back to consent well i will i will agree with you on one thing uh it, it's the sense that uh you know if we had a if we had a mode like GTA Five or something like that, where we could just turn, where we could go into you know a spectator mode or something like that and walk around the universe, I think that'd be great. You know, that's not something that we can replicate here in real life. We are sort of bound by the fact that other people will have access to us through our transactional Web two technologies and all that kind of stuff, right? Whereas if in Web three, if we can actually create like the uh, we can have control over the modalities where we interact with people. You know, what are the circumstances? What is the consent that we give certain people to reach us? I think that would create a new sort of paradigm and, and, and that would be more interesting to me. But right now, uh, you know, obviously that isn't all built out yet. And it's interesting to me that we actually have the ability to sort of voice what we want the metaverse to look like. You know, it hasn't been built out yet. So we can talk with metaverse platforms and creators and all that kind of stuff about what we would want and I think what's happened right now, which is why I'm a little bit more dubious about it on certain applications, right? Not all applications, but certain ones, is the fact that we've tried very hard to replicate the current real life paradigm in a lot of the metaverse platforms. And to me, that's less interested than what the digital experience could give me. Like if I can just fly like Superman around, and I can land on a beautiful island that's not an island, but it's 3D space that's all around me and all that. That'd be great. That would be really sci-fi, right? Yeah. But we haven't built that yet. We've sort of built, you know, and we had Charles, uh, you know, a couple of couple of episodes ago uh, from Nifty Island. We've built representations of what we're used to, right? And we're still at that weird skeuomorphic uh, iPhone phase where, you know, we need if YouTube needed to be like a TV, a TV icon because that's what people understood. But we're not at the point where we can actually appreciate the metaverse and what it operates, what it, the possibilities it offers. You know, we haven't been able to communicate that yet. So to me, it's, it's, it's a less compelling version of real life in a lot of cases. But I guess what you're trying to say as an optimist and, and, and the dreamer you are, is that it could, it, it could look a little different. It could be completely different, uh, but still have those relationships within it that, that really enrich life and then make life worth living and, and real. Right? Is yeah. that what you're saying? It is, you know, and like I'm, I'm under no illusions. I'm, I'm certain that in the year 2064, the save icon will still be a floppy disk in the metaverse. Right? We're never going to get away from that. But I, I think that I, you're right. We can design this universe. I would hope to allow us the, the freedom to interact in, in, at, in a very holistic way. Right? For to, to use an overused term. I think that's, that's going to be necessary. Otherwise, it's just second life which is not bad, right? That's, that's cool. It was cool. And I think, I think it still exists. And we've got the other metaverses happening. And, you know, you can walk around them and you can shop in them. But like you say, that's, that's taking the real world or the, the meat space and just plotting it onto the digital space, right? It doesn't well, really take, it take advantage of the true potential. Yeah, well, what I can tell you, Philip, is right now is, you know, from the gaming standpoint, it, it's uh, most of the... the we can I mean, maybe not the metaverse, but the shared spaces that you have in in in, uh, in video games is more like wish fulfillment, right? Look at look at this massive uh, contract I signed in 2K. Look at my penthouse apartment. You know, look at all the stuff I put on my basketball court. All that kind of stuff, right? And so, but it's still fundamentally to me, you know, speaking, I guess, as the old guy now, the boomer, as 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 I guess my students would call me, like a boomer that I'm done for. <laughs> But, you know, like, but I get, but for me, it just seems more limiting because obviously, you know, in the earlier days of gaming, we were talking about, you know, uh, magical Italian men, uh, uh, plumbers uh, running around with uh, leaves and like flying through the air. And now we're looking at, uh, you know, what kind of couch should I put in my, uh, in my virtual apartment in space? Like, it's like, yes, it's cool, but it's still, I think there's a certain level of mundane uh, existence that I think kind of turns me off a little bit. Uh, but I guess maybe that's my old Luddite thinking, right? Like that's my fear is that we're going to go into that sort of wish fulfillment reality universe for the metaverse rather than something what it, than something cool and unique and novel and, and really maximizes what we could do in that space. 
I hear you, but I think you might be downplaying the importance of couches. I mean, and what I mean by that is <laughs> out here, you know, we have, we have a, we have a, I mean, I'm going to call it a free market. I understand it's not really free, but let's say we have, we have this free market where people who love couches can geek out on couches, right? And that's cool. There's a vibrant industry of people geeking out on couches. And then that overlaps with people geeking out on interiors and that overlaps on architects building structures and that overlaps with city planners. And in and around all of this, we have people geeking out on different things. And what happens is you've got this giant, rich panoply of, of awesomeness, right? And terribleness, quite honestly. But you can pick and choose. So we need this sort of diversity of, of the mundane in the metaverse just as much as we need it out here. I, I think that's great. And all I'm, I'm, all I'm looking for in a couch, Philip, is, is it to go vertical and for it to be a slide as well, right? So you know, so let's make that happen, all right? And, and, and you know... And how that affects relationships going forward, right? You know, how we play, how we interact, you know, that's an open question. And I think it's an open question we should probably ask our, our upcoming guest, right? Who's an expert on relationships and how it might actually, how it works in real life here yeah. in meat space, but how it could work in the future with the different modalities that we have in the, in the metaverse. I agree. You know, and speaking of furniture, we get, to, we get to couches, we get to beds, we get to intimacy. And that's something we haven't talked about just in this intro, but that's another relationship that is going to be, I, I would hope, radically changed. Not just sexual intimacy, but also emotional intimacy, right? Can we achieve that in the metaverse the way that we have it in meat space? Well, uh, we're, we're, we're going to bait for clicks. Uh, so next episode, you hit on it. We're going to be talking about sex in the metaverse. Yes, you've probably all been waiting for it. So, uh, you know, we have uh, we have something exciting uh, for that one. Not exciting in that way, but, you know, we have an exciting conversation. But right now we have a fantastic guest and uh, here we go. We have a special treat, a guest who is a genuine expert on human relationships and how they manifest online. Dr. Joan Irvine is a doctor of clinical hypnotherapy and a practitioner with a varied background in tech, sales, government relations and policy development which provides her unique perspectives in her current work in sexual wellness and technology. She currently works with the adult entertainment industry in promoting online child protection and preventing sexual abuse, helping seniors use a variety of techniques and new technologies to improve their sex lives. Dr. Joan, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, I so appreciate being on here and being able to talk with you about all of this. It's very exciting. <laughs> it is. So Jason and I um, have spoken previously about relationships online. And we are participants in that activity, certainly, but neither of us are what I would call an expert on sort of human interaction, no matter you know, how long we've been doing it. So we wanted to bring you on uh, the show to help us better understand both how uh, interactions have been happening to date. Um, your experience sort of tracks along with mine and Jason's sort of the evolution of the internet. I think we were all around before there really was an internet and now oh, we're yeah. at web three. Before we jump in, um, more about your work and how it, let's, let's start at the end, if you don't mind, and sort of flip the script, how it relates to these new technologies of the metaverse. Well, it, no, can I say it's very interesting. And one of the things I do want to add in that wasn't in my bio for a few years, I actually worked for uh, a matchmaking service back before the internet, before match.com. So I saw what was happening in a non-digital world as far as putting people together. Uh, and I must say, even from there to now, even with the technology, there's still some basic things that have never changed. I don't care what the technology is. So what are those? Uh, well, the thing is to, uh, when I was a matchmaker, we tell people to only talk to the person a few times on the phone before you met up, because you could create this relationship and it was great to talk to, talk to people on the phone because you didn't have, you weren't seeing that face to face, you weren't getting those cues and you couldn't tell about the chemistry. And once again, you were kind of one step removed from it. So it wasn't like the real you. So, and so we would tell them, you talk twice, you talk a short amount of time then you meet each other, see if there is a connection and then you go from there. So take that from the analog world and move that to the digital world. And you had that in the, you know, the, the match.coms and the other dating apps, but at least you were dealing with people, but you were still, it was pictures, it was emails, it was that. 
And then now, then you move it forward to where people could be doing the video. So at least you could see the person. And now you have the metaverse where you're not even seeing the person, you're seeing you know, an avatar of that person. So you don't even really know that person that you're connecting with. Well, that's an actual very interesting uh, concept, right? That you don't really know somebody, and but some of the people that I, you know, that I, I've seen online or I've met over the years, uh, you know, uh, and some of my friend, close friends who are who are now mostly, you know, away and living in in places like Germany and stuff like that. I do interact with them mostly digitally and online. Mm-hmm. It, what is the what is the difference between how relationships develop in meat space in the real world? versus online like is there a difference is it or is it just two sides of the same coin i i it's kind of it's a combination it's a hybrid of that because you're you know you can see me i can be talking now and we're having this interaction but we are not looking at a dating relationship you know so that you know and also i could Online, I can have a different, a little bit of a different persona. You know, maybe you might feel a little, I hate to say, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more forward because we are online and you're like one step removed. And maybe you can take a little bit more, um, be a little bit more forward on things and you might be just in person. Uh, so, you know, it, do, it does vary on that, but you're talking to people that you know or people that you get to know. And if you're looking at them for a romantic relationship, it's really, and it's just a different animal. Yeah, so my youngest daughter was born in 2019, and which means that when she could really begin to recognize people around a year, we were more or less still in lockdown. And her relationship with, for example, my parents who live in Florida was completely digital. Older we saw my parents quite often, right? So they would see that face-to-face interactions. Mm-hmm. I only bring this up because we have, you know, the different types of relationships that, you know, that technology foster. Um, I'm thankful that my had a digital relationship with my parents, certainly, because, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you know, there was no FaceTime or anything of the sort. Um, but what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that even though it's there, like there's still something fundamentally lacking in a digital relationship, be it intimate, be it old friends, be it grandparents and grandchild. Is that the case? Or can I safely say, you know what, the metaverse is good enough. I have relationships and I have them online and they're as robust as my in real life relationship. And I really think it's situational. I mean, with the grandparents, first of all, with the grandparents, it's very safe. You know, you know, they're they're connecting. I mean, their unit, your daughter's universe is going to be totally different than my universe was in in comparison to yours. It's really going to be it's really generational. But you know who she's talking to. She's seeing the she's seeing the actual face. And if there is kind of any kind of avatar, it'd be more kind of a fun joking thing that she would be doing with your parents. so I think that fantastic. No, that's fantastic, especially during this pandemic, where that was the way, the only way, you really connect with people, you know, out of town. One of the things that that really strikes me is that you know, uh, you know, I, I teach uh, esports and gaming, right? Um, and a lot of gamers actually create an entire, you know, uh, social group entirely online, and some mm-hmm. of them have played together for decades and actually have never met. Right. And I think that goes to show exactly what you're saying. It's all situational, but a friendship to a certain degree, I guess, doesn't have as many of the uh, uh, social markers as intimate nuances as as an intimate relationship would have. So I guess what you're saying is that in in, in your sort of with regard to what you found, it's it really comes down to the Internet. Intimate relationships have a little bit more necessity for that in in real life approach and uh, that the metaverse or any other technology still hasn't been able to fully replicate that experience. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you just, I mean, with the intimate relationships, I mean, hey, you can, there's so much that you can be doing, uh, you know, using the internet and the metaverse. Uh, I mean, you can, I mean, it's real important if people are traveling or maybe they're bi-coastal and you can be having, um, to be very blunt, I mean, you can be having, you can be sexting, you know, you can be having kind of a visual sexual relationship with somebody, but it's still not going to be that high touch. 
you know, um, relationship so that you can create it, but it's not, it's not a substitute for, and that's my, one of my big concerns. It's not a, on an intimate relationship. It's not a real substitute for the real thing with friendships. As you said, you can, you have different groups that you talk to. I mean, I do it all the time, especially in the last couple of years. We know we've all been involved in this, but the intimate relationship is just a little bit different. Um, and you, plus you really need to know who you're talking to and what you're doing, because if it's on the internet, we know it never leaves the internet. So that's another concern. Interesting what you're saying about how the necessity, Dr. Joan, of all these nonverbal, non-visual cues in terms of having relationships. Certainly, we can have professional relationships over Zoom. Jason's example of online gaming communities. What I keep saying is there's some difference between those uh, relationships and the more intimate relationships, the romantic relationship we would have, where there is some necessity for what you called high touch. Um, and I am not an anthropologist, nor a biologist, nor a zoologist, but I think that probably speaks to our mm, ancestral genes as you know some sort of primate where we need to talk and touch each other and who knows what else. My question for you is, and it might be unfair, is it possible for technology to ever be good enough to mimic that? I, because the goal of the metaverse, I think, is to ideally have an immersive relationship that very closely matches the real world. And if we can achieve that, can we have meaningful, intimate relationships? Or do you think it's a fool's errand? No matter what, the metaverse can never replicate what we need out here. You know, I, at this point in time, um, I don't think it can totally replicate. There's a lot we can do, and you had kind of mentioned a little bit about um, like the NLP. I mean, there's things you can be bringing in everything around that helps a relationship. I mean, it's the visual. I mean, come on, I have makeup on, I have my hair done, I have colors that look good on camera. Um, I can talk to you about a previous experience that we had and just remember what it felt like and remember the tingle. I mean, I can go, I mean, I can do all that and I can bring you right to that spot by yeah. being here. Uh, so I can do all that, but there's something about the touch because you need to get in touch with how your body feels and that connection, I mean, one of the things that people talk about is like, you know, if you've had an intimate uh, experience with your partner, whoever, you know, you're, you've both orgasmed and you're there, you're lying in bed with one another. And there's that energy that flows between the two people that really connects you. And that's what and it really bonds you together. That is difficult to get outside of the two people being together and on the metaverse. I mean, you can recreate a lot of it by using behavioral modification techniques, neuro-linguistic programming, all that can be built into it. And eventually I'm sure that they will have something you know, else built into it that can work. I mean, excuse me, I'll go back to an old one. It's just a film, remember Barbarella with Jane Fonda. I mean, there was the orgamazic machine and, uh, you know, she was connecting with that. So there's ways that technology can work. And several years ago, probably a couple of decades ago, I know in the um, adult entertainment industry and the sex toy industry, they were actually coming up with technology so that you could have like a vibrator, some kind of sex toy that the person maybe that you're on the phone with, that they could control it so that you were interacting, you know, very in, in real time, just not together. So, I mean, I know it, I'm at saying, it, you know, two sides or many sides of the coin. Yeah, it's something that science fiction has been trying to deal with forever. I mean, uh, you're right with Barbarella. And if you think of like Logan's Run, they're, or they're in their future, they were pulling people offline. It was sort of a cool Star Trek effect. And then like THX 1138 is an old movie and they have, again, it seemed random, but there's this, it's sort of a masturbation machine that all of the little drones needed to sort mm -hmm. of keep them subdued. So, I mean, it's, it's a thing that people who think about technology always come to, right? And the idea is that we need to have this sort of this, this sexual, this, this intimate ability. And I don't think the metaverse is going to be any different. Um, I just, I think the question is, is it going to be 
good enough? And what I'm hearing is no, it cannot be. No, no, can I say it, it, it just cannot be. It can be almost, but it cannot, you know, that last mile, they talk about the last mile, you know, yeah. the, you can't, you can't do the last mile in a metaverse. I mean, hey, people can get excited. People can have orgasms. People can do all of that, but there's still that last, last, last connecting that just isn't there. And that's the most intimate of relationships. But what yes. about our other sort of non-intimate relationships? Um, I, what I hear you think can do great, just like the internet, in terms of business and online colleagues and clubs and whatnot. For that, it's fine. It's a, it's a fine substitute. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, absolutely. oh, I think that's fantastic. And especially in today's world, we've had to be very, very creative in how we are interacting with people. And it has opened up you know, just like we're doing right now. I mean, before I would have had to be in a studio with you, you know, it would have had to be a whole big, just a hassle here. You know, we're all at home or in our offices and we can interact and we can develop a relationship and find out a lot about one another. Plus I can go and I can, because I know who you are, I can go to LinkedIn and check you out. You know, so there's lots of research I can be doing with the people that I'm interacting with. While if you're in a metaverse and it's a fantasy, I mean, a lot of the metaverse is a fantasy, you know, that people are going into. So sometimes you just you don't really know the people you're dealing with. And that actually brings me to the next point, which is that we don't know who we're dealing with. And I think all three of us, we, we grew up with the evolution, Web 1, Web 2, Web 3 of, of the Internet and online. So, you know, I think we have a natural, healthy skepticism about, you know, who we're meeting online. But mm-hmm. I interact, you know, daily, weekly with my students uh, that are that are younger. They grew up with the Internet. They're less they seem to be less critical of who they meet online. Or, or less curious about who they meet online and maybe slight, to a certain degree, less suspicious of who they meet online. Okay. And that leads me to think like, how do we actually, it, are we the ones being paranoid <laughs> or, 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 or is this something that we should be imbuing on future generations about that they need to actually really develop that radar to check out who they're talking with and interacting with? I, I, we need to teach them about who they're interacting with or not. Because one of the things that you have a lot of the issues, you know, with uh, abduction, no, teen abductions, you know, you get these people who pretend they're like, you know, a stud, a football player. You got these great pictures, and you're going, "Whoa, is he hot?" And they know how to compliment. They know how to groom younger people, and the younger people take it as reality, and they have to learn that it really is not reality and they have to be skeptical they can't just go and meet people because that's where the issues are and the people who are doing this are have learned how to groom i mean i dealt with online child pornography reporting um for many many decades and you know you just saw what was going on with that so you have to teach your kids I mean, it's it's sad because when we were growing up, you know, it was love, it was know your neighbor, you could go anywhere. I mean, I could be gone for hours during the summer, bike riding around, and my parents never were worried. Now people can hardly let their kids out of their yard. Um, so I think you do have to teach them that this is a fantasy, that you don't give out a lot of information because they may just be trying to get information from you. So that they could come and they know that your family's going on a vacation. So they're not going to be there. So you can come and rob the house. So, I mean, that is going to be there. And sadly, that same issue that has been going on for, you know, one, two, and now three is still there in three. And it's not, I mean, you're absolutely correct, right? That we need to educate children, um, about the the dangers of being online, the importance of privacy, skepticism, um, a belief that good to be true, it is very likely too good to be true. Um, But the very young are sort of one end of the spectrum in terms of vulnerability. And for all iterations of the web, we've had situations where the very old have been falling to scams of a different type. Uh, Certainly, I mean, I, I don't know about grooming in older people, perhaps it happens, but 
the, what I read about a lot in the news is a lot of financial scams you know, where people call you and say, oh, it's the Social Security Administration. We need your number. We need your bank account information because there's been a mistake and you know, people are losing life savings because of mm-hmm. things like that. Another topic that Jason and I have been talking about is how the metaverse is wonderful, but it's in a whole, just a new, a, a buffet of possibilities for taking advantage of those people who aren't prepared. So how do we address that? Oh, I mean, that, can I say it's, that's really a hard one because being of that older generation, um, I see that people still have not been used to, they're used to trusting. Like we were taught you trust, you follow the rules, you know, that, that, that there was a certain protocol to our life. And reality is I do not, if I get a um, unsolicited email, text, or whatever that says we need this information, I just don't answer it. And then what I do is then I go and I call the credit card company or I call the bank. I mean, I get the number, it's on the back of my card. So I do not trust anything that is unsolicited. And even now that you have a lot, like with Facebook, so many times people will, and this is where the older generation is more on Facebook than they are on the other um, sort of engines. Um, that they say, hey, I've been hacked. You got a note to connect with me. So people are using your connections to connect with you and then trying to get information. So you can't, you know, sadly, you can't trust anything. But also what's also sad is, as you said, they're going for, you know, the seniors and the seniors don't understand we weren't raised. I happen to be lucky that I got involved in technology like 40 something years ago. But most people in my generation did not get involved in the detail of it as I did. Um, and so they don't they don't know that you can't trust all of this. And some people, I mean you do have people who start you start to have memory stuff going on. You know, you start maybe a little bit of dementia, maybe some Alzheimer's, maybe where all of a sudden you're not, you know, you're in a different world and people are taking advantage of that, which to me is just horrific that they're doing that. You know, going back to internet relationships, uh, my question is, you know, we've we've been tracking web one, web two, web three. The, the joke in the early days of the internet was that what the, the, the Avenue Q said the internet is for porn. Uh, you know, and they made an entire song about it. Um, you know, how has the, how have all these experiences, including the one now with the metaverse and everything, you know, how has it actually impacted human sexuality? Because there's been obviously changes, right? I mean, I, you know, I, re- I remember, you know, when I was younger, you know, if you got a Playboy, that was a big deal. And eventually it wasn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you could just go online. Um, but, you know, you know, how has it impacted human sexuality and how do you think the metaverse might actually impact it as well? Yeah. Ooh, that's good. I mean, what you're talking about is like, you know, go back to Playboy. I mean, as you said, it was great at the beginning and it was like, oh, OK. And then it wasn't. But it sets you up. And can I say in a certain way, it sets you up, especially to set up your sexuality, because a lot of our sexuality starts when we're younger. There's just very subtle things that happen that set us, set us up for our sexuality. So if you're looking at Playboy, you were used to looking at beautiful women that it's you know, been airbrushed, it's been photoshopped, you're expecting you know, big breast and you know, just this totally made up person. And if that becomes your ideal, it sets you up for, no woman is going to be able to compete with that. So, you know, so you have that unrealistic expectation of what life is like. Also, and some of it is talking about the adult entertainment industry, you know, the adult entertainment industry, that is staged, you know, and it's staged so it lasts a certain amount of time. so that, you know, you go, okay, well, this is how sex is. We do X, 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 and then we come. Uh, so it can be setting you up for premature ejaculation because you think you're supposed to be, you know, having an orgasm like so quickly. Um, and they don't, if they're getting their sex education from the pornography, from the adult entertainment, it's not the place to be getting it. However, Parents are not, and society has not, do not train 
or teach children about sexuality so that they're going any place that they can go for. It. I mean, we used, to, as you said, you went to Playboy. We used, to, I used to go to, you know, the girlfriends. You sit and you talk. Somebody kissed. What did you do here? Um, and so I think it sets up unrealistic expectations that people they, they don't understand how to get, you know, that relationships and sexuality in person. You go from here to there, um, and. A, a lot of what they've seen, not just in adult entertainment, but other entertainment, because it's uh, it has to be concise to a certain period of time. You know, you I say I'll repeat, but you always see that people okay, they start to kiss and then they go right into you know intercourse and right into having an orgasm, and it's no, you know. <laughs> and then I think the one retort right, which I've heard for every iteration of the web is, yes, it's dangerous, but it can be a great educational tool. We have new ways to, to, to work with children and adults, right, of, of all ages to help explain, you know, sexuality in a different way. So it's less objectified, less arms like, less idealized. Um, mm -hmm. I have a sneaking suspicion that the internet has failed every time we've relied on it to make education better. And I feel like the metaverse is going to similarly fail. But I will ask you, do you see any hope where the metaverse could be a useful tool to address exactly the problems you're talking about? You know, first of all, I think we're going to have the same issues that we've had in one, two and three and, and prior to. Because, in fact, I was on a webinar a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, youth and the metaverse. The same issues that we've been addressing for the no, since one, are still the same issues. We still do not have a completely 100% protection for children. Um, in fact, it was interesting, one of the uh, positions I had, um, I had a policy council and we were developing policies um, for the uh, high risk top level domains. And that time it was for dot triple X. Now I had a policy council and amazing people. I walk into the policy council and Nadine Straussen, who had been uh, president of the ACLU for 18 years, first female, and also taught at New York Law School. We we're all sitting around, we we're in Washington, DC, and at this policy council meeting. And she said, you know, we can make the internet 100% safe for children. Just turn it off. And, you know, and everybody, you're laughing. Everybody burst out laughing because that's the only way it's going to be a hundred percent. And since you can't do that, then how do we handle it? You know, and the way you have to handle it is policies and procedures, and doing the best that you can. But I just have not seen it really get any, sadly, get any better because. I can put in or suggest policies and procedures. We can have everything going, but unless everybody else buys into it and is doing it, you know, it just doesn't work. And how disappointing is it to you personally, Dr. Joan, that youth and as well as as well as anybody really, I guess, are basically learning human sexuality from adult films or things like that. They're distributed on the internet rather than, you know, through educational process, through conversations with people, like, you know, how, you know, is there a way that we can bake that sort of educational process in using these technologies that we are just not doing because of profit or greed or anything like that? Or is there, is it, you know, what, what can we do basically? Yeah. You know, I think I, you know, some of it is profit. Some of it is greed. Some of it goes back to the fact that you don't talk about sex. I mean, we haven't, we were never taught about sex, except you do X, X, and X. And you never talk if there's problems, even as adults. I mean, I, you know, I do hot sex for seniors. And part of it is the fact that if there's, if there's an issue, you need to talk about it, but instead you just don't because, oh, we don't want to upset that person. You know, that he's gonna feel like he's just not competent. You know, you're interfering. They talk, I always, you know, you see commercials and they talk about his manhood. You know, look what it's done to you all. You are, I mean, I'm blunt. I mean, you're, what's been put out there in the adult entertainment industry is big and huge and, you know, how, you know, and in locker rooms, you know, how can you compare to this, yourself to this person, just as we females look at, okay, we don't have our, our 
uh, breasts are not as big or our hips are not as small. So, but it's going back to the education, being able to have discussions where, you know, I can be perfectly honest. I don't have to be as, I'm not PC when it comes to a lot of things when I'm talking to, especially individuals, you know, about sex and what can improve their sex life because being PC doesn't help. Uh, and we've been taught to be PC, you know, around, um, sec especially around sexuality. And so if we were, Looking at the, you know, the, the, the metaverse and Web3, mm -hmm. what are some of the policies that we could use uh, and what we and some of the outlets that we can put in there so that, you know, the youth of America, seniors, everyone can actually access this information, this sort of unfiltered information so they can learn. And, uh, you know, you know, how do we bake it in as part of the, the metaverse or other yeah. places? Well, can I say I it's very difficult because with children, I mean, we still have this divide. You know, and you still have parents that don't want their kids to learn about sex because especially unless they're going to be teaching them and they don't. I remember this is going way back. I went to a Catholic girls school and the nuns were supposed to teach us about preparation for marriage. The nun, my homeroom nun would not teach it because if we knew about it, then we may want to get married and may want to have sex. I mean, that's that's kind of the background that I came from. So. Um, I think you have to be careful with children. And that's the thing is you almost have, to, it's two worlds and you have to, and I don't think you can intermix the two worlds as far as what you're talking about. So that you have to have a world out there as we do now that, you know, under 18, you just have to have so much protection. I mean, in reality, if, you're, if your kids have not learned about the metaverse and internet and all the rules and regulations by the time they're 16, you know, they know more about it than you do. So, you know, they, they can get on whatever they want and you as a parent wouldn't even know. But so I think you need to put that as to one side and then you have all these child educators who are involved in that. That's really not my area of expertise. Mine is to protect them against that. Now with adults, it is being able to have, you know, people talk about it and be able to ask questions. Because a lot of times we don't want to admit that we don't know what we don't know. And so that I think from there, we can, many more people are now doing Zoom meetings around sex education, or I can be doing therapy sessions with people online so we can be addressing it. Uh, so I, as I said, to me, it's, it's a, you know, two worlds out there. Metaverse being useful for that. I mean, it's yeah. in a sense, the metaverse and distributed ledger technology are, are very related. And mm -hmm. I'm seeing uh, specifically um, DAOs pop up where people who have a common interest, but there aren't many of them are joining forces and they're doing it in really interesting ways. So people with, for example, a very rare or, or, um, non or I'm sorry, difficult to treat disease are banding together to fund research because mm -hmm. the large pharmaceutical companies don't see a profit in it. There's just not, I mean, it's gross to say, but there's not enough sick people yeah. for them to spend money on a drug, but there are enough sick people that they get together and they're finding ways to sort of join forces and DAOs are one way that they're doing it. Um, and I can see where the metaverse might be useful for that. It will increase our ability to find like-minded people. Uh, and even in terms of sort of if I am in a state where, uh, for example, sex education has been <laughs> outlawed for by the legislature, I can hopefully find, you know, a group online where like-minded parents are still trying to let their kids talk about things or they're trying to sort of find a group. And the other thing that's nice about the metaverse married to distributed ledger technology is there is a sense of verification. Um, Jason had mentioned how sort of the three of us probably grew up with a healthy skepticism of everything online. Mm -hmm. Well-deserved. One of the benefits of blockchain is if you have that address, there is, and if you've got that, got that presence, you can take steps to make sure that you are in fact you in a way that you can't do in Web 2.0, right? Catfishing mm -hmm. is very is is easy to do in the web as it exists today because there's no ultimate verifiability. It is possible to use the blockchain to be intensely verifiable, mm -hmm. right? And if you can do that you have sort of this, this new avenue where we could have these walled gardens where you're not allowed in here unless you have very much proven you know, who you are and what you're doing and why you're there. And that's, that's a possibility that Web 2.0 doesn't have. 
but I hope. Oh, that's, can I say that's interesting because I don't, you know, I don't know about, I mean, I know about the blockchain and, you know, the information that it contains. And if you can do that, that's, that's fantastic. Because one of the things with the, you know, Web 1.0 and 2.0 is the only way that we could keep kids off is that you could have to, you know, people have to ask for, gee, are you 21 or not? Or you're 18 or not? We know that anybody can put that in or you have birth date verifiers. You know, you, you kids, if they want to get on, they know what birth date to put in there. But then what I developed or helped develop in when I worked for the, um, this online child protection group that was funded by the adult entertainment industry was a website label. So it was a label that the adult sites could put onto their website. And if parents used parental control filtering systems, that's on every piece of equipment now, back then it wasn't, that the kids couldn't even get to that site. And I know we're not talking about sites now, but so there's there's ways, but there was too many, there were so many ways around it. Um, and it took parents getting involved in it. Um, but if you can, as I said, please go on on the blockchain because I haven't, you know, that's not my area, you know, I don't know about that, but that would be perfect if you really knew because of that information, who is on there. But then how does that, I'll throw something out, how does that affect privacy? Oh, it affects it a lot, right? And it's not blockchain per se that allows me to be identifiable. I have to elect to do it. It's just that the beauty of blockchain is it is in a sense immutable. Once it's there, it can't be corrupted. It can't. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, if you say a thing is true and it's been proven to be true in the chain, then you always have a record that it's been proven to be true. It's a little bit difficult because, of course, you know, people will always find ways around it. But there is technology out there where, for example, I can have my in real life identification, my driver's license, my passport, for example. I can keep that information sort of secret to me. And if an institution out there these days, it's like a bank, wants to know who I am. I can verify to them who I am cryptographically such that they can trust I am who I am. I can trust I'm sending it to the right place, but they never actually have to sort of see the information. We just sort of trust that it is. And it's a, it's, it's a marvel where you sort of are trying to be verified and private. Um, and I hope that the metaverse can sort of leverage that so people who have taken that step can exist in these near real life situations where we can have conversations and it can be safer than it is online. Oh, I mean, that to me, as I said, I don't know, but that just is, would be fantastic because we've been trying, I mean, I've been involved in online child protection since 2002. So if we can finally 20 years later, if there's a technology that can work in the way that you're talking about and people know about it and people adopt it and incorporate it into their technology, that would be wonderful. Yeah, one of the things that we always, uh, and one of the purposes of this podcast is everybody just thinks, you know, uh, metaverse, crypto, uh, crypto, everything is just money and coins, and it, that's not it. It's 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 a it's a fundamental, uh, you know, huge revolution in technology that can be used for multiple purposes. And this is, I think, one of those ones where uh, it'd be great to actually sort of, uh, you know, uh, verify who who's getting this kind of information, who has access to that kind of information, because as you said, Dr. Jones, there's just so much out there that you know could be a, a negative influence. Uh, but if there's at, at least whitelisted places that we can uh, direct people to, that'd be fantastic. And uh, you know, if we can uh, control the access there through, through using the technology on, at our disposal, I think that's something that's not been done to the level that probably should be. Well, we didn't have the technology before. Yeah. You're talking about, I mean, you're talking about a white, a white list. I mean, do people even realize you know, what white listing is? And I mean, that's a real 1020 kind of terminology, while with blockchain with three, then it's it's out there and it's just, it's not really even a whitelist. It's, it's a um, database of, uh, yes, come in and you can talk to me and here's my information. Absolutely. And it's, and one hopes that sort of those wallets can then be, those addresses can be changeable sort of across platforms because I mean, the other issue is <laughs> what I fear is like Facebook, is I'm not even gonna say good. Facebook tries hard to prevent certain types, certain types of content it decides is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Not very good at getting rid of dangerous content. Uh huh. <laughs> it's made any sense, but 
I, and that's that's a little bit of what I worry about is we have sort of these centralized institutions deciding what is and is not dangerous. Hopefully, the metaverse can sort of bring in this uh, a different place where it's not somebody else deciding what is and isn't dangerous, but again, bringing control back to where we want it. If it's with seniors, it's with seniors, and they can decide that they will play sort of in these particular places, or their their caretakers can decide for them. Same thing with yeah. parents and children, right? Go for it, kids, right? You need to know the metaverse. The metaverse is awesome, but I want you to sort of stay here. And mm-hmm. One hopes the walls we can build are going to be less, you know, Band-Aids and duct tape and much more verifiable and trustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, oh, I so agree. And, I, and that Band-Aid thing has been going on for, you know, way too long. That's great. Well, uh, Dr. Joan, thank you very much for your time. Uh, you know, it's been fantastic. Are there any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to leave our, uh, our listeners with, uh, our fellow Metasapiens? Oh, no. Well, can I say, enjoy the metaverse. Enjoy all the benefits that are out there. You can use it to enhance your relationships. You can use it to enhance your life. But just be careful. Just be, be aware of what's going on out there and, and, and have fun, you know? <laughs> Wise words for us all. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Joan, and we look forward to having you uh, on the the pod again. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.